Hi, welcome to Bookie. Today, we'll unlock the book The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. What do you do first thing in the morning? Brush your teeth, wash your face, take a shower, or eat your breakfast? Do you tie your left or right shoe first? Which route do you take to work? When you arrive at the office, do you first check your email or make small talk with your colleagues? Do you eat a healthy salad or a hearty steak for lunch? After you get home in the evening, do you exercise or make your dinner first? You may think that all of these choices are the result of deliberate thinking, but they are not. Most of those actions are the byproduct of your habitual patterns. According to research published by Duke University in 2006, 40% of people's daily activities are born from habits, not decisions made after careful consideration. Habits play an essential role in our lives. Over time, they profoundly impact our health, productivity, financial security, and happiness. As a result, we all want to develop good habits or break bad ones. Nevertheless, most of us fail to do so and easily revert to our regular patterns. However, once we understand the science behind habit formation, we can break habits into segments and restructure them to develop good ones that fit our needs and support healthier eating patterns and higher productivity. Over the decades, Charles Duhigg, the author of this book, consulted hundreds of neuroscientists, psychologists, sociologists, and marketing specialists. Based on this extensive research, his book explains the neurology of habit formation and the mechanics of changing habits. We'll divide the premise of this book into five main areas. Part 1, The Neurology of Habit Formation. Part 2, How to Change an Old Habit. Part 3, How to Create a New Habit. Part 4, Finding Keystone Habits. Part 5, Are We Responsible for Our Habits. Part 1, The Neurology of Habit Formation. How do our habits function? Let's first tell the story of Eugene Pauly. Pauly was diagnosed with viral encephalitis. While his physical health recovered, he suffered from latent memory loss. Pauly couldn't retain any memories of recent events. He couldn't remember the name of people he had recently met, nor could he remember the dates of recent events. Some mornings he got out of bed, walked into the kitchen, cooked himself bacon and eggs, retreated under the covers, and turned on the radio. After a short time, he would repeat the sequence all over again. Concerned, Paulie's wife reached out to Larry Squire, a scientist who specializes in memory loss. When researching Paulie's case, Squire discovered a very peculiar detail. Despite his memory loss, Paulie could remember his way back home. Paulie was advised to get more exercise, so his wife escorted him for walks, taking the same route every day. Doctors also asked her to keep an eye on him at all times because they worried that he would not be able to find his way back home if he got lost. However, one day, while his wife got dressed for their stroll, Paulie slipped out the front door unnoticed. Worried sick, his wife looked for him everywhere, but to no avail. When she returned home despondent and ready to call the police, she found him sitting on the couch watching TV. Paulie didn't even recall leaving the house, let alone how he found his way home. The pinecones on the table were the sole evidence of his departure. When Squire asked Paulie to draw a map of the block where he lived, he couldn't do it, and he later forgot the assignment altogether. Next, researchers began accompanying Paulie on his walks. They discovered that, even though Paulie couldn't tell his companions the direction of his home, he always found his way back. 
Since the part of Eugene's brain related to memory retention was damaged, Stark suspected that another part of the brain was involved in helping Paulie find his way home. In other words, his brain was developing a new pattern. But how did he manage to do it? This mystery was explained by a study on rats in the brain and cognitive science department at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Researchers implanted tiny sensors into the brains of rats and observed them searching for chocolate inside a maze. Each rat was placed behind a partition that opened with a loud click sound when the experiment started. At first, each rat wandered around the maze, sniffing the corners and scratching the walls. At this stage, the brain displayed a high level of mental activity. However, with time, the rats became increasingly familiar with the maze and could quickly find the chocolate. Finally, they began performing the act almost unconsciously, as the action morphed into a habit. One structure played a vital role in the process, the basal ganglia, a golf ball-sized lump of tissue located toward the center of the skull. When rats take the same route several times, their brains gradually convert this sequence of actions into an automatic routine that can be stored in the basal ganglia, which will then recall the routine and act on it. As such, rats developed a habit. Habits explain why learning to drive a car requires significant concentration, but we can do it unthinkingly or even entertain other thoughts as we drive when we become more experienced drivers. Once we've learned how to drive, our basal ganglia assume control when we pull out the car keys, and each of the necessary actions happens automatically. Our brains are always endeavoring to save effort, and habits allow our brains to conserve processing power. We don't need to think about how to walk, brush our teeth, or do other mundane activities. Instead, we devote our mental energy to more sophisticated activities, such as the presentation we need to give in front of our colleagues or the client meeting we need to lead. But how do we know when to remain vigilant and when to let our habits take over? If we choose the wrong moment to switch to habitual behavior, we might fail to notice an errant vehicle on the road and get into an accident. Therefore, our basal ganglia developed an ingenious system to determine when it is appropriate to let habits overtake other behavioral patterns. Let's see how it worked on the lab rats in the maze. Before entering the maze, the rats were unaware of what was behind the partition. Therefore, their brains exerted a lot of effort looking for a hint as to which pattern to use. At that moment, if a rat heard the familiar click of the partition, it automatically utilized its maze habit. Once the chocolate was discovered, its brain regained control to ensure that everything unfolded as expected. This entire process unfolds in the brain as a three-step loop. First, there is a cue, in the rat's case, for example, the click of the partition. The cue helps the brain understand which automatic mode to turn on and which habit to use. Second, there is a routine, which can be physical, mental, or emotional, in this case, it is the rat going through the maze. Third, there is a reward, the chocolate. The reward assists the brain with determining whether this particular loop is worth remembering and using in the future. So, what does this have to do with Paulie? The reason why Paulie could go home on his own was that he had formed a habit. This habit loop allowed him to navigate back home despite his memory loss. The trees and mailboxes on the corners were cues, and their fixed placements guided Paulie on his way back home. Finding the way home was his reward. That forms the first part of our bouquet. Paulie's story and the experiment on the rats in the maze introduced us to the habit formation loop, which involves the cue, the routine, and the reward. Part 2, How to Change an Old Habit. Habits are compelling and, once formed, won't disappear automatically. 
For example, after learning to drive a car and developing the habit of doing so, we don't need to learn it again. When proper cues and rewards come into place, the pattern reappears independently. However, habits are also very delicate and can be altered at will. They can be redesigned by adjusting each part of a habit separately. To understand the technique of redesigning these patterns, let's use an example of the habit loop shared by the author in the book. While Dewig was researching this book, he formed a bad personal habit. Every afternoon he would go to the cafeteria and buy a chocolate chip cookie. This caused him to gain weight. To adjust this behavior, he first needed to identify the routine or the behavior he wanted to change. His routine was getting up from his desk in the afternoon, walking to the cafeteria, buying the cookie, and eating it while chatting with one of his colleagues. The second step was to identify the reward for this routine. In this case, was it just filling up his stomach? Topping up his blood sugar levels? Did he need a temporary distraction? An innocent chat with his colleagues? Figuring out the reward in this case required performing some experiments. By readjusting his routine, he could discover the reward. Here's how Dewitt carried out his research. On the first day of the experiment, he went to the cafeteria, bought an apple, and examined his hunger levels. On the second day, he bought a donut. Perhaps a blast of sugar was the reward he craved. On the third day, instead of going to the cafeteria, he went for a walk. He assessed whether or not he just needed a distraction from his desk. On the fourth day, he had a chat with his colleagues without going to the cafeteria. Was socializing the reward he needed? Perhaps the cookie was merely an excuse. He returned to his desk following each experiment and wrote down the first three things that came to mind. These included emotions, thoughts, or reflections on what he felt. For example, relaxed, saw some beautiful flowers, or not hungry. Then he set the alarm for 15 minutes. He asked himself whether he still wanted that cookie when the time expired. If, after eating a donut, he still wanted a cookie, it meant that he wasn't craving sugar. If he still wanted a cookie after meeting his colleague, socializing wasn't the reward either. Through these experiments, he isolated the actual reward of his habit loop. For Dewig, the prize was socializing, which offered him a temporary distraction from his work. The third step is to isolate the cue. Cues aren't exactly easy to find. As our behavior occurs, there's an abundance of information filling our brains. It's difficult to distinguish which one triggers our habits. Do you know what suddenly influences you to turn left when driving to work? Is it a street sign? Or a particular tree? Do you just know that this is the correct route? Or, is it all of these factors together? One way to make things easier is to learn about the category of cues. Scientific research proves that almost all habitual signals fall into the five categories, location, time, emotional state, other people, and immediately preceding actions. Now, exploring these categories will help you detect the pattern. To find the cue that triggers buying the chocolate chip cookie at the cafeteria, Dewig needs to write down these five things the moment the urge hits. On the first day of his experiment, Dewig wrote the following. I am sitting at my desk. The time is 3.36 p.m. I am bored. There are no people around. Just before the urge hit, I was answering an email. He journaled for three more days until he suddenly discovered commonalities in his records and finally found the cue. His habit was triggered every day around 3.30 p.m. 
After identifying the routine, the reward, and the cue, you can start remodeling your behavior. Focus on the cue, and find another satisfying reward. Previously, Duig's habit was going to the cafeteria at 3.30 every afternoon, buying a chocolate chip cookie, and socializing with his colleagues. To change that, he developed a plan. Every day around 3.30 p.m., he made sure that he spent about 10 minutes talking to one of his colleagues. It was far from easy in the beginning, but, as time passed, afternoon chats with colleagues became his new habit. Let's summarize the second part of our bouquet. Following the habit loop, we should experiment to identify the cue and the reward. Then, we can remodel our habits by adjusting our routine while keeping the cue and reward the same. Part 3, How to Create a New Habit The habit loop helps change old habits as well as create new ones. Prominent American ad executive, Claude Hopkins, used a habit loop to establish a toothbrushing habit in America and turned Pepsodent toothpaste into one of the world's best-selling products. What was his secret? Hopkins claimed he had learned the right human psychology. This psychology involves two basic rules. First, find a simple and obvious cue. Second, clearly define the rewards. Slogging through piles of dental textbooks, Hopkins found a reference to mucin plaque, which he dubbed the film later on. He started advertising toothpaste as a creator of the beauty that could deal with that film. The film was the cue that triggered the habit. Advertisements asked people to run their tongues across their teeth to feel this film. They also claimed that using Pepsodent could give people beautiful smiles as a reward. As a result, millions of people took up brushing their teeth twice a day. However, these two basic rules aren't enough to establish a new habit. The third rule, which is to develop cravings, must also be satisfied. Hopkins' success relied on that rule so much, even though he didn't know it existed. Wolfram Schultz, a professor of neuroscience at the University of Cambridge, ran a lab that revolutionized our understanding of how cues, rewards, and habits interact. Schultz researched the behavior of a macaque named Julio, who loved blackberry juice. He would position Julio on a chair in front of the computer monitor and instruct the monkey to touch the lever once a shape of a particular color appeared on the screen. Julio was then duly rewarded with a drop of blackberry juice. After various repetitions, Julio developed a specific type of behavior. He became content every time he drank the juice. A probe that connected the monkey's brain to a computer allowed Schultz to monitor Julio's brain activity, and a pattern soon emerged. Every time Julio was rewarded with the blackberry juice, his brain activity would spike to infer that he was experiencing happiness. In essence, this was his brain saying, I got a reward. As time passed, Julio's behavior became a habit from a neurological perspective. As he became more accustomed to this behavior, Julio's brain started anticipating the blackberry juice. The I've got a reward. Pattern started emerging when he saw the colored shapes on the screen, even before the juice arrived. Then, Schultz adjusted the experiment. When Julio performed correctly, sometimes the liquid didn't come, was slightly delayed, or was diluted with water. On those occasions, Julio became angry or sullen. This helped Schultz detect the emergence of a new behavior, craving. The joy became a craving when the blackberry juice didn't follow the cue as expected. If dissatisfied, Julio would become livid or even depressed. However, it also kept the monkey determined to continue with the task, ignoring other activities. This principle explains why many bad habits are stubborn, like smoking. 
when a smoker sees a pack of cigarettes, the brain starts craving a nicotine rush. If the rush doesn't arrive, the craving grows until the smoker lights up a cigarette. The success of Pepsodent was also driven by the craving Hopkins created. Unlike other toothpaste brands on the market, Pepsodent contained citric acid, mint oil, and other chemicals that created a cool, tingling sensation on the tongue and gums. Those who used Pepsodent started anticipating this tingling and felt their mouths weren't sufficiently clean without it. As people began craving that tingling, brushing their teeth became a widespread habit. Hopkins wasn't selling beautiful smiles, he was actually selling the tingling sensation. Asking customers to run their tongues across their teeth encouraged them to feel that sensation more intensely. When other companies discovered this, they started imitating the ingredients of Pepsodent. Within a few decades, almost every toothpaste contained oils and chemicals that replicated that sensation but didn't clean people's teeth any better. The same thing happened with shampoos and laundry detergents. The lush foams we get when applying shampoos to our hair give many people a sensation that they enjoy. Foams are actually unnecessary for cleaning our hair or clothes, but companies keep adding these chemicals to their products to give consumers rich suds that make the cleaning process visible in a way that we've now come to crave. So, how do we employ cravings to develop good habits, like working out, for example? If you want to start running every morning, you need to create a cue, like leaving your workout clothes next to your bed. Next, set a reward, like the sense of accomplishment from tracking your miles. When you expect the reward of your run, the craving occurs. Once there's a craving, going for a run in the morning becomes automatic. That completes the third part of our boo key. When we use a habit loop to create new habits, we need to add a craving to the formula. In other words, before following the routine, we must crave the reward first. And this craving prompts us to execute the needed behavior. Part 4, Finding Keystone Habits. Many people feel the need to cultivate good habits and drop bad ones, but where should they begin? The answer is to start with keystone habits. Keystone habits are the most influential habits for transforming businesses and lifestyles. When they shift, they remake other patterns too. When Paul O'Neill became the CEO of Alcoa, the aluminum company of America, he challenged the keystone habits of the entire organization. Eventually, he converted a lumbering, overstaffed, crisis-ridden company into a profitable and safe corporation. Before O'Neill's arrival, each Alcoa plant suffered at least one accident per week. After taking the position, O'Neill implemented a safety plan that brought the number of work injuries down to practically zero. He based his safety plan on a habit loop. He identified employee injury as a cue and instituted an automatic routine. Whenever someone got injured, the unit president had to report it to O'Neill within 24 hours and present a plan to ensure that it would never happen again. As a reward, those sticking to the procedure received promotions. To contact O'Neill within 24 hours of an injury, unit presidents needed to hear about the accident from their vice presidents as soon as it happened. Therefore, vice presidents had to be in constant communication with floor managers. Accordingly, floor managers had to require workers to report problems as soon as they occurred, along with a list of suggestions. For this, they had to develop new communication systems within their units and change the company's rigid hierarchy. O'Neill wasn't just changing old habits, he was also creating new corporate practices. As the company's safety routine changed, product costs decreased while quality and productivity rose. But how did that happen? 
when splashing molten metal injured workers, they would start redesigning the pouring system, which led to a decline in work injuries and less raw material was lost via spills. Machines prone to breaking down got replaced, which, in turn, prevented accidents and reduced volumes of subpar aluminum production. All these actions focused on improving safety also ensured better quality and quantity of the final product. Changing the keystone habits initiated a chain reaction for Alcoa. It works much the same way in people's lives. However, most people haven't realized this, and they believe that if you want to become a better self, you need to change your lifestyle completely. For example, if you want to lose weight, you must make couples of changes together, including following strict diet plans, exercising, and switching to taking the stairs instead of an elevator. However, most of these approaches fail because sticking to them is next to impossible. In 2009, the National Institute of Health funded research on different approaches to weight loss. Researchers asked 1,600 overweight people to write down what they eat at least one day a week. As participants slowly became accustomed to keeping their food journals, they noticed the patterns they didn't see before. Some realized that they tend to snack around 10 a.m. and change the snack for a fruit. Others used their food journals for meal planning and ate the healthy meals they planned instead of junk food. Researchers didn't suggest any of these behaviors, the only thing they asked participants to do was to keep a food journal. As it turned out, journaling was a keystone habit that created a foundation for the other healthy habits to be introduced into participants' lives. Redefining this keystone habit didn't make anyone depressed about dieting, instead, it achieved excellent results. Barely six months into the research, those who kept a daily food journal had lost twice as much weight as their peers. There are many more examples of such positive changes in people's lives. Studies show that people who routinely exercise also eat better, are more productive at work, and are more patient with others. They smoke less, feel less stressed, and use their credit cards less frequently. Families that habitually eat dinner together are found to raise children with better grades and improved emotional control. People who make their bed every morning have increased productivity, a greater sense of well-being, and keener budgeting skills. These are examples of keystone habits initiating a chain reaction in one's life. They help create a foundation for good practices and significantly improve people's lives. Above are the contents of the fourth part of our bouquet. We can initiate a chain reaction and redesign many of our habits by changing our keystone habits. And, it doesn't matter whether you're working on a corporation or a person, the principle is the same at all levels. Part 5, Are We Responsible for Our Habits? As we mentioned previously, habits are powerful. They create neurological cravings that result in consistent behavior. For this very reason, gamblers still play the slot machines long after they've lost all their winnings. With habits being near impossible to control, should we be accountable for the outcomes of the irrational behavior our habits produce? Should we blame a gambler for their bankruptcy? Should they be required to reimburse their debt to the casino? These were the questions that Angie Bachman faced. After marrying at 19, her life soon revolved around her kids and cooking. Every day, as her husband and kids left the house, she would spend time alone with nothing to do. Twenty years slowly ticked by. One day, she felt disturbingly alone. She decided to go and have some fun to take her mind off things, so she went to the casino. That day, she spent two hours in the casino, and despite losing $40, she felt delighted. Later that night, she had something new to discuss with her family at dinner. 
From that time on, whenever she felt lonely, worried about her parents' health, or upset that her husband and kids were indifferent to her anxieties, she would go to the casino. As she sat down at the gambling table, her bad mood vanished. Soon, she picked up a few tricks, her luck improved, and she managed to win some money, which she used to help pay bills. Naturally, she also lost occasionally, but that's part of the game for any gambler. However, with time, her losses became more frequent and compounded. Soon, she had no money left to help with any bills, and she resorted to asking her parents for loans. The worst part of it, however, was that gambling had controlled her life. She found herself consumed by gambling, constantly craving the rush of a successful game. She also started feeling confused and anxious when she didn't go to the casino. As Bachman developed a gambling routine, it soon became her habit. The lethargy and sadness of her family life were the cues, and the thrill of the win was the reward. Eventually, Bachman declared bankruptcy and began living an austere life, but that wasn't the end of her story. Several years later, her parents passed away, and she inherited $1 million. Her parents' death was a massive emotional blow for her. She was on the verge of a breakdown, and her husband provided no comfort. So, she returned to the welcoming doors of the casino. As the casino manager patiently listened to her vent about her life, he quickly grasped her current financial situation. Soon after, she started receiving calls from the casino offering her free limo service, tickets to concerts, plane tickets, etc. The casino was actively trying to lure her back into gambling, and she couldn't resist. Eventually, Bachman gambled away all of her inheritance along with her house. To add insult to injury, she also owed the casino $125,000. Her life was completely ruined. She couldn't help but wonder how much responsibility she needed to take. She felt that anyone in her position would make similar choices. In court, her lawyer argued that she shouldn't bear the blame for her losses. He insisted that her gambling wasn't a personal choice but rather a habit that controlled her every time she entered the casino. Do you believe that Bachman should be held responsible for her gambling? Maybe you believe so. But let's look at another story about a murder caused by habitual behavior. Compared to murder, an unconscious mistake made out of habit isn't a big deal, right? But in this story, the person escaped punishment for murder because of his habits. Brian Thomas was a sleepwalker. While he and his wife were sleeping one night, Thomas woke up to see a man on top of her. He grabbed the assailant by his throat and choked him to death. Only then did Thomas realize that the person he had killed was his wife. He had done it all in his sleep. When we slumber, our limbs and nervous system become paralyzed, so we experience dreams while our bodies are motionless. In the case of sleepwalkers, while their nervous systems go into paralysis, their bodies remain active as they dream. Some of them rise from their beds and start replicating what they are doing in their dream. At this moment, the areas of their brain that remain active are similar to those responsible for habits. In other words, sleepwalking is a habitual behavior that requires no participation from the more advanced regions of the brain. Sleepwalkers are following the habit loop and cannot foresee the outcomes of their behavior at that time. Thomas never meant to kill his wife. He wasn't in control of his actions at the time. His defense lawyer argued that Thomas followed a habit, a basic human instinct to protect his wife from the intruder. His brain received a cue that someone was assaulting her. The habit took over, and he tried to defend his wife. 
Thomas was eventually acquitted of the charge and even received some public empathy as a victim. Bachmann, however, wasn't so fortunate, the court found her guilty. No law prohibited casinos from enticing compulsive gamblers to enter the casino. People aware of their gambling problems could join the voluntary exclusion program on their own so that casinos would put their names on the block list, but Bachmann chose not to do so. Why does acting out of habit, with no power to control the behavior, have different outcomes in the two cases? It's simple. From the very beginning, Thomas had no idea that his behavioral pattern of sleepwalking would drive him to kill. Bachmann, however, knew about her habit and knew that it could lead her into precarious situations. Therefore, she had a responsibility to change it. Most of our patterns are deeply rooted in our habits. Apart from such conditions as sleepwalking, our practices can be altered. Changing them is up to us. We can't be like Bachmann and use the power of our habits as an excuse to continue living the way we do. That's the fifth and final part of our bouquet. We've learned that most of our habits can be changed despite their power over us. Therefore, we bear full responsibility for our habits. Above are the main contents of today's bouquet of the power of habit. The majority of our daily behavior happens under the influence of our habits. They create a loop that consists of the cue, the routine, and the reward. By understanding the main principles behind habits, we can change bad habits to create new ones. How exactly do we do that? To change a habit, we need to find the cue and the reward that triggers a particular routine before replacing it with another behavior. To create a good habit, apart from finding a cue and a reward, we also need to develop a craving that will stimulate the routine. If you have many habits that need alteration, you should first identify a keystone habit to initiate a chain reaction. Redesigning a keystone habit will make changing other habits twice as easy. To modify a habit, you need to believe you can change it and make a conscious choice to act accordingly. Once people choose what they want to become, they grow to how they have been exercised, just as a sheet of paper or a coat, once creased or folded, tends to fall forever afterward into the same folds. Our choices define our lives, which is the true power of habits. If you are interested, welcome Search Bookie and listen to the full audio instantly.